All right. Well, we will be finishing today our study that we've been walking through uh, entitled Work and Our Labor in the Lord. So we've been going through this book, uh, Work and Our Labor in the Lord, written by James Hamilton, Jr., and the focus here has been on a biblical theology of work. So tracing throughout the Bible, what does it say about the concept of work? It's a very relevant topic for all of us, right? We all have work that we do. So it's been a very edifying study uh, when it comes to trying to understand better what, um, what has work been created for? What are the things that we ought to be doing um, when it comes to work? And the approach that the author has taken, which I think has been very helpful, is to break it up. As you see, we've, we've covered four chapters, and those four chapters follow the arc of redemptive history, right? So he starts out in chapter one uh, with creation, then in chapter two, the fall, chapter three, redemption, and chapter four, which we'll be covering today, is on restoration. In fact, the title of the book, is, or the title of the chapter, rather, is restoration, work in the new heavens and the new earth. So as the title suggests, the focus will be on uh, now uh, the eternal state when Christ comes again to fully establish and consummate his kingdom, when Christ comes again to gather to himself all of the saints to be with him in glory forever, when he removes righteousness or removes sin from the world, and when we have this, you know, what we see in Scripture as a, a new created cosmos, a new heavens and a new earth, where we will dwell with God forever. When that time comes, what will we be doing? What will work look like in the eternal state? So that's our topic for today. Um, you know, so hopefully by the end, you know, any questions you've ever had about what life will be like in the eternal state, I'll have been able to answer. <laughs> uh, just, just joking. Uh, obviously, we, we only have so much um, that we know from Scripture, right? We, there's a lot more left uh, as a mystery uh, that we will find out, you know, someday than what has actually been revealed about what life will be like in that eternal state. Um, but we, that's not to say that we, that we don't have any details in Scripture, right? We do have these instances that we see, you know, throughout you know, the Old Testament and then again in the New, uh, certainly in Revelation, where the biblical authors sort of pull back the curtain just a bit where we can get a glimpse of what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, what we will be doing. And so that's what Hamilton takes on in this fourth chapter, that's what he's focused on, is um, what does Scripture say? What, what can we glean from studying Scripture uh, to understand, you know, in the restoration, in the consummation of Christ's kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth? What can we understand about uh, work? Well, to answer the question of what we will be doing in the eternal state, we have to go back and start with the question of what were we made to do in the first place? Right? Like we just talked about in um, describing the way that Hamilton's laid out these chapters in the book, uh, he's done a good job of sort of tracing this for us. And so when we go back and look 
add to those chapters. As I mentioned, we started with creation, right? We started with God creating Adam and giving him specific directives as to what he was to do in the Garden of Eden and ultimately throughout the earth, right? Um, God created man to work, uh, as Hamilton says in the book, to, he was given the commands to be fruitful and multiply, right? To, full, to fill and subdue the earth uh, and to exercise dominion over the earth. He was to work and keep the garden that God had made, and he was to image God's own character to improve God's creation so that all life might flourish. He was given these commands by God, uh, these directives on what he was to do. He was essentially to expand God's kingdom throughout all the earth. However, as we see in chapter 2, uh, when Adam sinned and, and when we sinned through Adam, the all of creation was, uh, was cursed by that sin. And so now, you know, in that post-fall state, man is unable to fully um, accomplish those tasks that he'd been given by God at creation, right? We still have those directives from God. Those are things that we still are to pursue, to be fruitful and multiply, to fulfill, subdue the earth, and exercise dominion over the earth. But we can't do it fully because of sin. However, that's not the end of the story, obviously. When Christ comes, he redeems his people and he enables us, as we saw in our um, lesson in chapter 3, he enables us to, well, first, he sets us free from uh, slavery to sinful and idolatrous approaches to our work, and he sets us free to be conformed to his image and to uh, work in a way that shows forth our love for God and our love for our neighbor. And then, uh, and ultimately, Christ is the one who fulfills these tasks that were given to Adam, right? Where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. And then in the restoration, as we'll look at today, I just included some clips from the book here, but um, you know, Hamilton says, God will bring to pass the purposes he set out to achieve when he spoke the world into existence, right? What God set out to achieve at creation, he will bring, to, he will bring about in the restoration uh, God has not trashed his first failed attempt and started over like someone crumpling up a paper and throwing it in the waste bin, right? Uh, to the contrary, what he set out to do when he made this world, he will bring about when he makes it new, right? When we're talking about making it new, that concept that we see in Scripture of uh, this recreated cosmos, this new heavens and new earth, the, the new creation that God will, um, will bring about. God will make the world new, and we will do new work. The new work we will do is the work of ruling and subduing, working and keeping, exercising dominion, and rendering judgment, as all, all as God's people in God's place, in God's way. And so, what are we going to be doing at the Restoration? Well, what we were designed to do from the beginning. Now, I laid this out in a way that I think is... Um, a helpful framework for understanding what Hamilton's saying here. And I just want to walk through this quickly with everyone, but I think when we look at this in or through the lens of the functions that Adam was supposed to fulfill and that Christ ultimately did fulfill of prophet, priest, and king, this helps give us sort of a, a framework that we can use to understand what Hamilton gives us in chapter 4 when he talks about what are we going to be doing in the eternal state. And so, 
just kind of running, you know, once again through these concepts, you know, we see Adam, uh, when he's created by God, he's essentially fulfilling the functions of prophet, priest, and king. We see him as a prophet, right? A prophet is someone who um, God speaks to directly, who receives revelation from God, and then relays that to others. That's the case for Adam, right? Adam is hearing from God directly, God speaking to Adam, giving him specific instructions, and Adam is to take that and relay it to others. In the case of Adam, we see him, um, you know, he's only with Eve at that point, but obviously the command to be fruitful and multiply comes with the idea that there would eventually be additional posterity, right, an additional offspring who would also need to hear from Adam. Uh, He's also um, functioning as a priest. In the garden, we've talked many times about the Garden of Eden being essentially like a temple and the uh, similarities between the Garden of Eden and the descriptions we see of the temple in Jerusalem later. But the biggest connection there we see is you know, Adam's function in the garden. He's told to work and to keep the garden. And those words that are used for work and keep are the same words used um, when talking about what the priests were to do in their service in the temple. They were to minister and to keep guard over the temple. The same words used in Genesis for work and keep. Essentially what Adam is set up to do in the garden is to minister within it, to work within it, uh, to work the land, but also to keep guard to protect it. Uh, He's also meant to do that as well, which is the same command given to the priest in the temple. He's supposed to keep it pure and holy to prevent anyone or anything from coming in that might try to profane God's temple by bringing in lies and idolatry. And then he's also serving the function of a king, right? He has dominion over the earth. Uh, Certainly God is the ultimate king here, but Adam also is serving under him on earth, um, you know, multiplying and filling the earth and exercising dominion over it. Those are all of Adam's original functions or directives he was given. But of course, as we know, Adam disobeys God. He breaks the covenant, that the covenant sanctions that God had given him and eating from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil And so he fails in all these points, right? He fails to stand up for and uphold God's instructions as a prophet. As a priest, he fails to to protect against intruders into the garden by allowing Satan to come in and deceive Eve and himself in the form of the snake. And then as a king, he fails in that he surrenders his dominion to Satan in all of this. So Adam fails at all points, but Christ the true and better Adam, Christ the second Adam, then comes and fulfills all of these directives that God has given. Where Adam failed completely, Christ has fully succeeded in keeping these commands. Christ is our prophet. He you know, brings us words from the Father, as he says in John uh, 17, chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer in verse 8, he says, I gave them the words that you gave me. He's praying to the Father and and saying that I have given them your words. And that's certainly not the only point in the Gospels where Jesus makes uh, this claim that he is bringing us truth from the Father. Uh, We also see that Christ obviously is our great high priest as he's described in the book of Hebrews really throughout the book. 
Um, we see him described as a great high priest and a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then we also see that Christ certainly is king. Christ reigns over all. He's established his throne, and as we'll talk about today, he will come to consummate that kingdom someday when he comes again, when he comes to bring all of us in, when he comes to gather all of the sheepfold in, to be with him, to be in God's presence, in righteousness, completely free from sin forevermore. And so we see, you know, many examples um, throughout Scripture, obviously, of Christ being referred to as our king. And so Christ has fulfilled all of these things uh, where Adam failed. You know, um, since Adam failed in fulfilling these functions, all of his posterity, all of those under his federal headship, also are unable to do these things. But where Christ has succeeded as prophet, priest, and king, all of us, all of God's elect, all of those who he is saving, will be able to do these things because they are under Christ's federal headship. And he has accomplished these things. And so this framework is hopeful to keep in mind when we look at you know, what kind of work we'll be doing in the eternal state. Well, we will be following the lead of our federal head, Christ, in performing these functions of of prophet, priest, and king, but, you know, uh, in accordance with the uh, directions he's given us. And so going through, again, in the chapter, um, Hamilton starts out by going through some of the particulars of the restoration state. Uh, He looks at specific scriptures that talk about, um, you know, different aspects of what we will be doing or what... um, will take place in uh, the eternal state. And then at the end, he zooms back out to the big picture. So we'll come back to big picture later, but for the time being, we'll go into some of the specifics here. Um, Obviously, one of the main things that we know about the eternal state is that it will consist of uh, complete sinless righteousness that there will be no more sin in the eternal state. As we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness, the opposite of sinfulness, the complete absence of sin. So we know that finally, in that glorious state, we will be completely free from sin and the effects of sin. We also see from Scripture that um, we will be a kingdom and a priesthood. So again, going back to these functions that we've talked about, um, we see a number of references there in Scripture to this. Um, And again, Hamilton reminds us in the book, Adam was made a royal figure whose task it was to exercise dominion over God's world, and a priestly figure who was to work and keep the garden. Adam disobeyed and was expelled from Eden. So we've got Adam failing, disobeying, and being expelled from Eden. Then when we look at the kingdom of Israel, we see God made Israel a kingdom of priests with the opportunity to live in his presence in the land of promise, but Israel disobeyed and was expelled from the land. So again, we see another subsequent failure. But then Jesus came as Israel's king from the line of David, and he prophesied as the prophesied priest according to the order of Melchizedek, 
His people are his kingdom and a royal priesthood. And this is what we see when we look at scripture. We see in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Um, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We know that these truths about us, that we're a kingdom and a priesthood to Christ, are already true of us, and yet they still have an even greater fulfillment to come when Christ returns. But again, it's uh, important that we see these references so that we can understand what we will be. We will be a kingdom for Christ. We will be a priesthood for Christ. And of course, one thing that lies between here and there is the resurrection, right? Not, not a small detail. This is a big part of what we need to understand when we think about what life will be like in the eternal state. We will be resurrected, right? One of the conditions we'll experience is being resurrected and not being just spiritual beings, we see from Scripture that we will continue to be to have bodies, only not like the bodies we have now, but there'll be bodies that are transformed to be like Christ's glorious body. Right? So we're not just going to be, you know, ethereal spirits floating around on clouds. We'll be embodied souls, like we are now, only different. And exactly what that will look like, I don't know. Uh, we've had some interesting conversations around the house about what our bodies will look like um, in the eternal state. Uh, the kids have all sorts of theories. I, I can't say definitively that they're wrong, but I, <laughs> I don't know for sure if we'll have purple bodies like Olivia seems to think or, or what, but um, we don't have those details in Scripture, right? We just know that we will have bodies that are transformed. Uh, but some, some references uh, that we can go to in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So what we see there is those who have died will be resurrected. They'll either be resurrected to eternal life or eternal shame and contempt. We see in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's you know, the most detailed treatment that we have um, in the New Testament um, about the resurrection, you know, specifically dealing with the topic of resurrection um, there's much there. Uh, again, it's one of these places where Paul sort of pulls that curtain back just a little bit to give us a glimpse of some of the details of what we can look forward to. Um, but there in verses 50 to 55 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So again, we know that in that state we will be in resurrected bodies that are imperishable and that are immortal. Of course, we know that as we join Christ in glory, with death having been defeated, with the sting of death being removed, and a world that is filled with righteousness, that also, at long last, every wrong will be put right. As we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. When Christ removes sin, we also see that he removes the effects of sin. There will be no more pain and mourning. There will be no more death. It's a glorious future that we have to look forward to. Of course, in going with that theme, we also see that there will be a restoration of the people, but also of the land. There will be a restoration of God's entire creation. In Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, we read, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Here Isaiah is prophesying you know, the, the blessings that we already have in Christ. Obviously, when we look at uh, Christ's time on earth, uh, we see that he was performing many of these miracles already, right? Uh, giving, restoring blind, uh, sight to the blind, restoring um, hearing to the deaf, allowing the lame to walk, restoring uh, the ability to speak to the mute. He was already performing these miracles, and so Isaiah prophesies of that, but Isaiah is also prophesying of the um, eternal state where these things will be ubiquitous, where all of these effects of sin will be completely removed. Right? That was what Christ was foreshadowing when he was performing these healings. He was showing that he was God, and he was also foreshadowing what life would be like in the kingdom, that there would be no more effect of sin, that the people would be restored. Then we also see the same, though, for not just the people, but also the land, the, the remainder of creation. We read again in Isaiah, in chapter 51, verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Again, we see Isaiah prophesying you know, what would all, the blessings that would already come when Christ came and purchased our redemption 
but also the future blessings that we have to look forward to in the eternal state, that even the land, even the creation will be restored. One of the main uh, places we see this concept brought out in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 8, right? In Romans chapter 8, we see that it's not only man, but it's all of creation that has been uh, submitted to futility by the sin of man, that all of creation is under the curse of sin, and that that curse will be lifted from creation as well, right? We see that in verses 20 to 23 there in chapter 8. Uh, Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So it's not only men that will be restored, but also the creation. You can think of many ways in which the creation is, has been cursed. Um, examples of natural disasters that we can think of. Uh, but we see that even the creation will be restored. And as we've read and, and as we see um, throughout the New Testament, we, we are expecting a, a recreation or a renovation of all creation, this new heavens and new earth, that it will all be made new um, by God. Then Hamilton gives us, as well, another list of items that um, we see from Scripture that describe what we will be uh, doing in the eternal state. Uh, he particularly highlights uh, that we will be inheriting, stewarding, reigning, and judging. The first example he gives is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? And these blessings that Jesus pronounces on kingdom citizens, uh, one of them is that they will inherit the earth, which has you know, one of its fulfillments uh, as an eschatological blessing, um, that the saints will inherit the new earth as their dwelling place, as we see eventually in Revelation and also in Second uh, Peter. Um, and then we'll also be called, though, to be stewards of that earth, the examples uh, Hamilton provides are Matthew chapter 24, verses 46 through 47, uh, where uh, Jesus talks about the master who leaves um, his servant with certain responsibilities and is pleased when he comes back and sees that the servant has been fulfilling those tasks and gives him an even greater stewardship. Um, you know, there, Jesus says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. We know that we have stewardship now in this earth of the things God has given us, but we also expect that he will give us further stewardship in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the way that we steward the things he's given us now is very important. Then we also see, as we've talked about before, that we will be reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. 
We talked before about this concept of being a, a kingdom and a priesthood of Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, um, we read, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All right? In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, we see, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There Daniel is prophesying about the Messiah to come, that he will be a king, and he will be king of an everlasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom in which we will someday be with him. Just going down a few verses in that same chapter in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then we also see in the New Testament this concept of being judges in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, We see in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This statement from our Lord depicts an exalted position for his apostles. It would have been an encouragement to them at the time hearing it to see that they were eventually going to uh, be exalted over and above the Jewish people who were persecuting them at the time, certainly. But it, it again, depicts this idea of judging. Um, we shouldn't necessarily read into there that we all would be at such an exalted position, but... Um, again, it, it brings forth this idea that men will be set up as judges in the new world. Uh, further, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? There, Paul is upbraiding the church in Corinth because they are taking small, you know, trivial cases, in Paul's words, before the secular authorities to be tried rather than dealing with it in-house when they are fully capable of doing so and doing so in accordance with God's word. So, um, you know, Paul is chastising them there, but he brings up this concept that you know, if, if you are going to be judges of angels, if you're going to judge the world, how can you not judge these trivial cases? Again, sort of pulling that curtain back just for a second. Again, we don't know what that will look like. We don't have further details on what it will look like for us to be judges of the world or judges of angels, but we do see that that is a function that Paul specifically says we will be fulfilling. Then lastly, out of these sort of uh, particulars that Hamilton has given us in the book, he talks about uh, the fact that we will feast in the eternal state. Uh, In particular, he points out instances um, of this language that we see Jesus using. uh, We also see it in Revelation 
um, of reclining at table um, or eating and, and drinking at my table, as he says in another place. And what we understand that to be is not necessarily you know, physically eating and drinking, but uh, eating and drinking at his table is equated with sharing in the glory of Christ, sharing in his glory. We see in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, using this language of of drinking, of, of a supper, of a feast. In Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, again, that kingdom language, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So again, we see that language, eating and drinking at Christ's table, sharing in his glory with him in his eternal kingdom. This is something we have to look forward to. One of the most beautiful pictures we have in the New Testament of this is in Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, where we read, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. We see this marriage supper of the Lamb, this great feast, this joyous celebration that there will be when Christ is finally united with his bride, the church, his bride for whom he died. When the church gathered, you know, or the full body of believers from throughout all ages are finally gathered to be with their Savior, this will be a great marriage supper. Now, who here has been to a wedding reception? Yeah, I, I would imagine everybody pretty much here has been to a wedding reception, right? Are there great times of joy, are they not? They're wonderful times. Um, some of the some of the most joyous celebrations ever are wedding receptions, right? You have this wonderful picture of the bride and the groom coming together, um, joining together. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I've you know, been at these wedding receptions, there's just this feeling of everything has been set right. Everything is good. You know, um, everyone's happy. Everyone's joyous. Um, and... You know, of course, as we know, sin still exists, so you know the next day we all wake up and everything's not right. right? We're still living in this world, we're still dealing with sin on a daily basis, but it's a, it's a nice temporary feeling that there's so much joy and celebration that you know, all has been set right. Well, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, all will be set right. It will be the greatest wedding reception of all time. Because we will know that we will not be walking out the door, going back into a world full of sin, filled with sin ourselves, but rather sin will be completely removed, and that joy that we have at that marriage supper will last forever. 
this is something wonderful that we have to look forward to. And so stepping back, again, like I mentioned before, looking at the big picture, um, I included several quotes from the book because I thought Hamilton did a really good job sort of summarizing a lot of these points we've talked about as he's closing out the book. And so I'll read a few of those, then we'll talk about them briefly. Um, Hamilton says in the book, the correspondences between Eden and the tabernacle and the temple indicate that God set out to make a cosmic temple when he built the world. That temple was to be guarded and served, worked and kept by the image and likeness of God. Instead of working and keeping, Adam allowed the serpent into the garden, listened to his lies, and forfeited dominion to Satan. As a result, none of Adam's children got to live in Eden. Then he says, fast forwarding to the coming of Christ, Jesus cast out Satan by going to the cross, and when he returns, he will set in motion the events of the end that will culminate in the heavens and the earth becoming what God originally built them to be, a cosmic temple. In that cosmic temple, the people who belong to Jesus, who have been transformed into his image, will rule and subdue, work and keep, and no snake will ever enter that garden to speak lies to the bride of Christ. Jesus himself will ensure the safety of that redeemed place. Now, this is what we see in the new heavens and the new earth depicted in Revelation. There's actually the new Jer Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, is a city without a temple. There is no temple in that city because God himself is the temple. He is present with the people of that city. They are able to stand in his presence because they've been given the righteousness of Christ. So they actually can be in the presence of God. And essentially what we have in the new heavens, the new earth, is this new creation, this new Eden, where the original Eden was cursed because of Adam's sin. Now we have this new creation where Christ reigns, and he fulfills all of those um, directives, all of those functions that Adam failed to. And we, as those who are under Christ's federal headship, are also able to do all of these things. And then lastly here, uh, Hamilton writes, Jesus will come and raise the dead. Jesus will come and cleanse the land. Jesus will come and banish sin. Jesus will come and make weapons and gates and locks and alarm systems unnecessary. Jesus will come and make it so that mankind can do the work in the world that God created us to do. It will be, indeed, a very glorious place. And we do have much to look forward to in that new heavens and new earth. But in the current heavens and earth we also still have much to look forward to, much work to do, right? We already, if we are saved, if we have put our faith in Christ alone for our salvation, if we've repented of our sins, God has saved us and granted us eternal life, and we are enjoying that eternal life already right now. While we do still have to deal with indwelling sin, we already are those who are living for Christ as citizens of his kingdom. And so that means we have much to do right now. We don't have to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth as the place where we will be getting our work done. We have work in front of us right here. After all, when we go back to one of those key passages that we talked about, Second Peter chapter 3, 
where we see the new heavens and the new earth mentioned, if you rewind a bit, if you start back in verse 9 to get the context, you see um, you know, the point that Peter is making here. Uh, so let's do that. Let's read through verses 9 through 13 in chapter 3 of Second Peter. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, what is Peter saying there? He's saying that God is not slow to fulfill his promises. That as much as we might hasten that day of the Lord, God is not being lazy in that he hasn't returned already. God has yet more of his elect throughout the earth that have yet to come to repent and believe. That's why he hasn't come yet, because there are more who are still to be saved. There are more to be saved. And so what is the command we've been given here on the earth toward those who've not been saved? We look to Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, where Paul writes, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the mission that we've been given as the church, to take the gospel forth so that all of those that Peter talks about, all of those who've yet to come to repentance and faith, will. And we know that they will come to repentance and faith through the hearing of the gospel. And it is our mission to take that gospel to them. That's what we've been given to do. And so we, as much as we look forward to the new heavens and the earth, we are blessed wonderfully blessed here and now and given the opportunity to go out and preach the gospel to those who the Lord will use it to save. And so let us set our minds to that mission. We are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as God commanded Adam to do. And we also do this by maintaining faithfulness in our own lives and preaching the gospel in our own homes, giving the gospel to our children, raising them uh, and praying for them, praying that the Lord will grant them salvation, grant them repentance and faith, and that he will use them in future generations to continue to take his word forth. We should be praying for that. And we advance the gospel through the preaching of the gospel in our church every Sunday. The gospel's preached here. This is how people hear it. But we also take the gospel forth out into the communities where we live um, through evangelistic efforts and then also through building one another up in faith within the church. 
That's something we cannot overlook, the need to continue to exhort one another to faithfulness and to edify one another through speaking the word to one another, encouraging one another. So, as I've said, we have much to look forward to, but also much to do now. So, keeping in that mind, keeping that all in mind, um, let us set ourselves about that work.